Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to our first edition of Legal Face Off, the podcast through WGN Radio of 2021. I'm your new host, Joe Brand, filling in for Sam Paniotovich for the foreseeable future. Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini have some great guests today. We're going to start off with Ellie Honig, a special counsel of Lowenstein and Sandler, and also Frank O. Bowman III, a distinguished professor at the University of Missouri Law School. We've got plenty of topics talking about Donald Trump's recorded phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We've got some other great guests and, of course, our legal grab bag. So we'll get right to it on the Legal Face-Off podcast. So, guys, I'm going to keep this simple because the story, and by the way, the story about the, the Trump phone call to the Georgia state official, in this world, it's already old news, right? In any other era, this would be the biggest scandal, legal scandal, political scandal, but it already seems like old news, hard to believe. But I want to go back and talk to you with just three simple questions. I want you to both, you know, uh, fly with this one. Number one, was the call legal? Did Trump commit a crime? Number two, did Trump commit an impeachable offense, which is a little different? And then number three, and this might be the most important question, is there any prosecutor, either at the state or federal level, that would prosecute this? So, I'm going to let you both tackle those questions in any order that you please and, uh, you know, jump in. Ellie, what do you think of the first question? I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Could be yes and probably not. All right. So I, I don't, if you want to keep the first one, is there a crime? Could there be a crime? There absolutely could be. And look, my my one of the main points I've been making is prosecutors need to take a look here at an absolute minimum. Prosecutors, whether on the state level in Georgia, federal level, DOJ, can't just glide by this and sort of write it off to, well, it's Trump being Trump, put it on the put it on the heap with all the other things he's done. Um, I don't believe that's a prosecutor doing his or her job properly. Now, to break down this call itself, it's it's a fe- the federal law and the Georgia state law here are pretty similar. They both make it a crime to try to encourage somebody to count votes that were not actually passed. And really, perversely, perhaps, a lot of this comes down to whether Donald Trump actually believes the insane nonsense that he's saying on the call. If he knows that it, if he knows these votes were not cast for him, if he knows he's lost, then I believe it's right down the middle of a crime. If he legitimately somehow believes, contrary to all the objective evidence out there in the world, from DHS, from the FBI, from the courts, that these votes were cast for him, then he has a bit of a defense. So I think, look, we, there's more facts we have to know, but prosecutors absolutely have to take a look here. Professor, your thoughts on that? Well, um, I agree very much with Ellie. I've done a little bit of looking at the particular statutes. The one that probably fits best in the federal code is something called 52 United States Code 2511. And the key to trying to prove this, and I say this to somebody who spent like 14 years as a prosecutor before I became a pointy head, um, is that... You have to knowingly and willfully deprive, defraud, or attempt to deprive, deprive or defraud you know, various people um, of the procurement of casting a tabulation of, ba- of ballots known to be materially false, fictitious, fraudulent, and so forth and so on. 
In other words, the culpable mental state here requires that the criminal you're trying to charge, the person you're trying to charge, is actually consciously aware that what he's trying to do is get uh, people to fraudulently count ballots. And we're talking about Donald Trump here. And for four years, I think there's been this this ongoing debate is, is he crazy or is he evil or some weird combination of the two? And in this particular case, if you listen to the entire call, it's a long litany of stuff that he's been fed, very detailed, plainly been fed by his lawyers and other people about all the things that he claims to be wrong uh, or potentially wrong in Georgia. If I'm his defense lawyer and he's been charged with this crime, I'm going to go through this transcript one by one and say, look, the president plainly believed that there was at least a chance that he had been uh, defrauded of the election. And for him to ask uh, the, the, the secretary of state to inquire further into these matters is not a crime. All right, let's move on to the second question, because it's a little bit different. We've already heard from you know, countless elected officials saying this is an impeachable offense and that Congress should immediately draft articles of impeachment. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez has said that, you know, uh, among the most prominent Democrats. Uh, obviously, we all know now, having lived through the impeachment um, saga with Trump, you know, recently that a crime, a criminal crime is very different from an impeachable offense. Right. So does this call, Professor Bowman, rise to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor that would subject the president to impeachment, understanding that there's also political questions involved here, and he's only got a few weeks left in office if you follow something called the Constitution. What do you think of an impeachable offense, Professor? Two questions here. First is whether or not it is a high crime and misdemeanor. I think the answer is pretty plainly plainly yes, um, as you indicated. You know, One of the things that we fought out as we always fight out in every impeachment battle, um, of, at least of an American president, is whether or not an impeachable offense has to be a crime. It plainly does not. Um, you know, this is something that uh, you know uh, I helped the House Judiciary Committee in, uh, in terms of you know articulating the theory for this in the report. Argued with Alan Dershowitz. Da 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 da. But the plain plain fact is, as a matter of uh, of long constitutional precedent, uh, an impeachable offense does not have to be a crime. But Essentially attacking the integrity of the American electoral, electoral process plainly qualifies, I think, as, as high crime or misdemeanor. And technically, yes, could he be impeached? But the second, and this too is, a, is an interesting constitutional question, is can you impeach somebody after they've left office? Um, can you either commence an impeachment while he's in office and continue it to uh, a Senate trial after he's left, or could you even... Uh, pursue an impeachment after somebody's left office? I think the better answer is probably yes, for a variety of reasons. The principal one being that one of the remedies for conviction in impeachment is uh, a future bar from uh, ever serving in, in federal office again. And it would be a very peculiar notion that somebody could escape that part of the impeachment clause by simply resigning really fast uh, so that you couldn't invoke that penalty. But that said, uh, there have been two officials impeached over the history, course of American history, Senator Blunt um, early on uh, and the Secretary of War for, for General Grant, uh, both of whom, by the time matters came to the Senate, were no longer in office, and there was genuine, and, and neither was actually convicted, and it, it's at least arguable that one of the reasons they were not convicted is that they were no longer in office. So at least that's a debatable point. Ellie, your thoughts on that impeachment? 
It's right down the middle of impeachment. It is textbook impeachable conduct. As the professor said, you do not need a statutory crime in order to be impeachable. Uh, this is an abuse of power. It goes right to the heart of our democracy, our electoral system. Um, it's an interesting question the professor raised. Can you be impeached after uh, you're out after you've left office. Look, it could be relevant here. I mean, there are plenty of indicators that President Trump is planning on on running again in 2024. So an impeachment and conviction could actually prevent that. Now, what's saving him from impeachment, I think, is a couple things. One, he's already been impeached once. There's no rule saying you can't be impeached again and again and again. But as a political matter, any appetite that Speaker Pelosi or the Democrats may have had went away after that first one and which leads me to two which is which is the impending end of this administration it was election day now it's january 20th he's on a li very limited clock anyway so nobody's going to impeach donald trump in january of 2021 um putting aside the possibility of, of that sort of future looking issue that professor bauman talked about but i think the reason donald trump has sort of gotten away with everything he has since a year ago when he was being impeached for ukraine is Politically, Speaker Pelosi and others just looked at the clock, looked at the calendar and said, we're too close to Election Day. Let, you know, the voters are the best way to, to do something about this. And remember, Trump was going to wear a Superman costume under a suit and rip it off when he left the hospital, claiming that once you get COVID, you're immune. Maybe he thinks that once you're impeached, you're immune. There's you know, similar maybe, concept. Yep. Maybe there's impeachment immunity. Last question here for both of you is, um, you know, again, the, maybe maybe the most practical one is. Both of you are former U.S. attorneys, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys, former prosecutors. The practical question is, would anyone either in Georgia or in a Biden Justice Department actually take this case on? You said, uh, Ellie, earlier that certainly prosecutors would look at it. It's a clear case, prima facie, that they should look at it. Whether there is the political will, capital, resources to actually prosecute it, when we know that Biden has already said that once he's president, he won't be going after Trump, do you think that any prosecutor would take this case up? So, yeah, and I would lump in with that all the other things that are out there, that the obstruction of justice from the Mueller report, the Manhattan DA's investigation. Generally speaking, Joe Biden, I think, has done one really good thing and one bad thing in terms of preparing for his administration to come in. He has said publicly he will leave prosecutorial decisions to charge or not to charge entirely up to the attorney general. He will have nothing to do with that. It's good and important that he said that that's a key function of our system. As a former federal and state prosecutor, I know and understand that you cannot have electoral politics, partisan politics or even chief executives, governors or presidents have any role whatsoever. What he's done that I don't think is so good is, as, as you said, he has said to enough people around him that it very quickly was publicly reported, and Joe Biden knows what he's doing. I mean, the man's been in Washington, D.C. a long enough time. He knows if he says something to five or more people, and NBC News reported this story and cited five sources, that it's going to get out that he does not want to see his DOJ pulled down this road. Now, I understand why. It would be enormously difficult, politically difficult, practically difficult, divisive, to charge the recently departed president. Same goes for state level prosecutions. I understand that it's an awfully difficult decision to make if you start with the assumption that there has been a crime. And prosecutors can and should weigh all of the relevant factors. But what I really do not wanna see happen, what I really think is, is 
an abrogation of duty is if prosecutors, DOJ or state, just sort of breeze past it and say, we don't even want to look. We don't even want to open this box. I think they have a duty to do that, to get all the facts, to understand, A, has there been a crime? B, how strong is the evidence? C, how serious is the crime? And then weigh that against all the external factors. If they don't even do that, they're not doing their jobs. Professor, last word. I just want you to consider that, again, the reality about these you know, prosecutions is that the news cycle happens so fast in the Trump world. You know, there's so many egregious things that happen every day. By the time a prosecutor would seriously consider this, you know, today we're dealing with the Georgia runoff. Tomorrow we're dealing with the senators, right, debating whether the electoral college process should be certified. Do you think there will be will, you know, even in a week, two weeks, a month, two months for a prosecutor to take this case on? I think that with Ellie, I think that there is an obligation on the part on the part of any prosecutor, federal or state, who is presented with colorable evidence of um, crime by anybody, president, former president, to at least inquire into the matter. Now, of course, in Mr. Trump's case, in the case of his family, there's likely to be the special problem of pardons, which we don't have time to talk about here. Uh, but assuming that you can get past that, and I think there are ways of doing that, particularly with Trump, because I don't think you can constitutionally pardon yourself. Um, there remains the question of whether or not it makes good sense to do that. Um, and we don't really have the time to talk about all of the factors that might weigh into that. The one thing I would say in sort of response to your question, Rich, is that prosecutorial investigation, serious investigation of complex crime moves at a different pace than the news cycle. It will take time. And what I think the Justice Department ought to do, and I think will do, regardless of what uh, President-elect Biden has said, is quietly, thoroughly inquire into things that might merit their attention. That's going to take time. That'll take weeks. That'll take months, many months indeed. Um, and at the end of that process, we'll see. Uh, and as long as they take it seriously, then I think they will have done their job. Professor Frank Bowman and frequent Legal Face-Off guest, return guest, Ellie Honick, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face-Off. Please come back. We appreciate your time. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, 
Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff here on WGN Radio. We've got Rich Lenkoff. We've got Christina Martini. I am Joe Brand. And our guest this segment is Stephen Gillers, professor of law at NYU. He's also got a new book out he'd like to tell us about as well, Regulation of Lawyers, now in its 12th edition. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Professor, late last month, William Barr resigned after nearly two years as President Trump's attorney general. His departure was announced, as many things have been over the past four years of Trump's presidency by Twitter, and was right after the Electoral College had affirmed Joe Biden's election. But Barr's resignation letter could not have been more effusive in his praise for President Trump. What really happened there? Did he jump or was he pushed? Well, we have to guess. I think he was pushed, but he negotiated a gentle um, push uh, by praising the president adequately, which means a lot for the president because praise can never be stinted. And in return, he did not get excoriated by the president when he left. But there was no doubt but that he was leaving, uh, that the president wanted him out. We may not know why for a while, but he left within weeks of his departure on January 20th. It's hard to understand why, other than the fact that he was pushed. Professor, there's been lots of discussion about Barr's legacy over his time at the DOJ uh, in the wake of his departure. And, you know, we've covered on this show a lot of what we think, what many legal experts have thought have been ethical lapses uh, under the DOJ by uh, the attorney general. You know, one of them, for example, is his involvement in the Republican National Convention, contrary to, you know, a long history of attorney generals not getting involved. Um, as a legal ethics expert and someone who literally wrote the book, you know, we often say this person, you literally wrote the book on legal ethics. As I was saying to you earlier, I think I still have your book from my law school days somewhere uh, in storage. So you're really the expert on this. What do you think are some highlights and maybe lowlights in terms of uh, A.G. Barr's time at the DOJ? Well, I think that he, he tipped his hand and colored our view of his tenure forevermore when he mischaracterized the content of the Mueller report days before he released it. So he created the impression that it was exonerative of the president, when in fact, as Mueller himself later corrected him, it was just the opposite. Uh, he omitted information. A federal judge later uh, criticized him for his misleading summary, uh, said he was not trustworthy in his description of the Mueller report. Once he did that, everything else he did thereafter would be looked at through the prism of that Trump-favored characterization of what Mueller said. So, Professor, when Barr came on board a couple of years ago, I think there had been high hopes, at least among some, that he'd be able to protect the DOJ. 
What happened there? We know what his, as Rich alluded to, and as you just described, there are a whole host of events and turning points during his tenure where it was clear that he was not going to be the um, attorney general that people had hoped. What happened? Yeah, we can only guess. Um, Remember that his earlier tenure was uh, during the first Bush administration. Uh, He he's older. Um, He might have changed in his views, in his um, desire to be praised. Uh, His independence had gone out the window by the time he came into the Trump administration. Um, In his earlier uh, status as attorney general, he was he was conservative, but he was conservative within the tradition of conservative attorneys general. There was nothing outlandish about it. When he came in this time, he was manifestly political in how he ran the office, favoring not the country, which is his client after all, uh, but the president. And he has wounded the Justice Department. It will take a long time now to revive the department in the uh, reputation that it had under prior, most prior attorneys general, Republican and Democratic pre-bar. He's, he's caused it a lot of harm. And it'll be a while before we know how much or how long it takes to repair. Professor, last question here on Legal Faceoff. Speaking of the next attorney general, uh, or the one that will succeed, the current acting attorney general. Uh, you know, that's one of the uh, candidate positions that Biden has not yet named. It's obviously one of the most closely watched positions, given what we're coming off of during the Trump administration and given the uh, cases that the next or that a Biden attorney general would face, including the prospect, albeit relatively unlikely, of prosecuting an ex-president in Trump. So do you have any thoughts on who the next AG might be? We've heard lots of speculations. Doug Jones is the latest name we've heard. And more importantly, what you think the role of the next attorney general under the Biden presidency will be? Well, everyone wants to know who that person is going to be. For, for my vantage point, it's the most important cabinet position. Um, I think Doug Jones is a very likely choice. Um, it does not pick somebody of color. There's some pressure for that. It does not pick a woman. Uh, There's pressure for that. But it does pick a person who has a long history in civil rights enforcement. Uh, As far as the role of the next attorney general, Biden has made it clear that he he is not going to interfere in the operation of the criminal division of the Justice Department. A president has a legitimate interest in the operation of other divisions of DOJ. They are policy driven. Uh, What should be our antitrust policy? What should be our policy toward land use? President has a political investment in that. But until Barr, the rule has been that the criminal division operates entirely independently. And Biden has made it clear that that will continue to be so, even if the next AG chooses to investigate Trump or persons around Trump uh, after Biden takes office. I, I, I hope fervently that the next AG has complete autonomy within 
the scope of the operation of the criminal division's decisions. All right, Professor, well, thank you so much. Can you briefly tell us about your book? Oh, the book is um, a case book. It's rather expensive. It's The first edition was published in 1985. It's very unusual for a case book to go through 12 editions. I didn't expect that. This is probably the last one I'll do. Uh, it's very hard to do a case book, believe it or not. Um, it's widely adopted, and it's fun to write. Uh, case books do not have to be boring. The, my case book is an effort to proclaim that a case book can be fun to read. And I think it is fun to read. Uh, so all of your viewers should buy it tomorrow on hey, Amazon. Professor, a younger me in, in the 90s would vehemently disagree as I was trying to get my ethics knowledge at 3 a.m. But absolutely, given the fact that it's not a, the 12th edition speaks volumes, for, for sure. Congratulations on that. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Back on Legal Face-Off, getting back to Justice Barris' topic as we welcome in Edward Whalen, President of Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And so far, Justice Barrett has had to deal with high-profile cases, including a challenge to the Affordable Care Act, uh, religious liberty versus gay rights, the presidential election, pending executions, uh, state coronavirus restrictions, and excluding undocumented immigrants from the census. And that's all in her first two months on the job. Um, how challenging is it for Justice Barrett and her clerks to start her tenure on the highest court during this incredibly challenging time? Well, it is a very challenging time. And of course, she came in um, right in the middle of a term with uh, arguments uh, start coming up right after she started. So I'm sure hitting the ground running uh, took a special challenge. That said, she's uh, incredibly bright and works very hard, and I'm sure, she'll, um, I'm sure she's caught up by, by now. Most of those matters you mentioned, of course, uh, uh, we've just had oral argument in them, and uh, you know, we'll see the opinions come down the road. Glad, during Barrett's confirmation hearing, Senator Chris Kuhn said what many on the left were speculating. And he said, quote, your confirmation may launch a new chapter of conservative judicial activism unlike anything we've seen in decades. But that really hasn't happened or been the case so far. Do you care to comment on that? Well, sure. Well, uh, of course, it's been a short time, but I don't expect uh, a longer period of time to reveal that either. Um, of course, we'd have to work out exactly what that charge means. But the two particular examples that were used most often at the hearing were election-related litigation, where she supposedly would be delivering um, re-election to uh, Donald Trump. That hasn't happened. That's not going to happen. No, no, no hint of that. And also the Obamacare case where it was claimed that, that she somehow um, would be a, a, a sure vote against Obamacare. No one who um, uh, listened to the oral argument uh, came away um, with that take on things. So, look, I think Democrats were um, making whatever arguments they thought would help them politically rather than um, 
fairly and accurately assessing her record. And you're an expert in the nomination process, and especially, you know, with the Trump nominees to the Supreme Court, you've commented and written extensively about that. Given your answer uh, just now, I'm curious, do you think the era of predicting what Supreme Court justices will do once they're on the bench is over? I mean, given what we've seen with Barrett in her short time, but also Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, they haven't exactly been as Democrats predicted. They haven't been mouthpieces for Trump. Do you think... And I think it's a great development if, if the answer is yes. But do you think the idea of being able to predict what a justice will do once they're on the bench is pure folly, given you know where we are now as a country? Well, I don't think it will stop, and I don't think it should, actually. I mean, I think there are folks who make their political predictions for political reasons, trying to get political advantage in the short term. And those predictions, uh, I think, tend to be very unreliable. There are the longer-term assessments of um, uh, how someone's um, uh, declared judicial philosophy will play out. Um, usually when people ask me, how's this new justice doing? I say, ask me again in five or 10 years. Uh, so I, I would hesitate to, to um, draw any grand conclusion based on a short period of time or you know, uh, fault anyone for not having had their predictions come true there. But over the longer term, I sure hope that um, the um, predictions um, based on judicial philosophy that um, I and others have made turn out to be sound. Of course, uh, you know, no one can anticipate uh, exactly how any particular justice uh, will rule. Uh, cases are complicated. There are lots of difficult issues. Um, no, no justice is a clone of any other justice. Uh, so there's there's peril even for the most um, sophisticated observer to, to offer predictions. But um, look, I think it's uh, it's uh, entirely proper that folks uh, may make their, their their best efforts to do so. So, Ed, you're a former clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia and co-edited three volumes of Justice Scalia's books. Um, I assume the late justice would be very proud that one of his former clerks has been elevated to the Supreme Court. Would you like to expand on that? Sure. I, uh, uh, from what I hear, uh, Justice Scalia was a great admirer of Amy Coney Barrett. And yes, I do think he would be delighted um, uh, that uh, she is on the court. Um, ironically, the first time I met um, then law professor Amy Coney Barrett was the uh, occasion of a Supreme Court celebration of, of Justice Scalia um, after, this was some eight or nine months after his death. And uh, to, to reflect on what's happened since then with her career is just remarkable. And we've got a minute or two left. I just want to leave you with a story I've told very frequently on Legal Faceoff of the time that Scalia mocked me in a room full of Federalist Society uh, members. I was asking him a question about Bush v. Gore, and I thought I was going to stump him, you know, with this really, uh, you know, thoughtful question about how Bush, his decision in Bush v. Gore was contrary to, you know, bedrock Republican precedents. And as he's reading my question, again, in front of this room of Federalist Society folks, he stopped on my word precedence, and he spelled it out the way I wrote it on the cue card. And instead of spelling it the plural precedent, I, spell it, I spelled it P-R-E-C-E-N-D-E-N-C-E. -E -E. And of course, you being one of the foremost people who work with Scalia knows how he would love to point out that inaccuracy and the, his tone in doing so. And as he stopped, the whole room laughed, right, at my... As a dumb way I spelled it. And then he continued to read the question. And of course, 
excoriated me, not knowing it was me, but, you know, explain why the decision was not inconsistent. And then afterwards, I got in line to sign the book he wrote with Brian Garner. And uh, as I handed it to him, I said, uh, uh, Your Honor, would you please sign it to the idiot who can spell precedence? And he had a nice chuckle about that. But that was my uh, my brush with Scalia. Well, better to be faulted for spelling than for poor reasoning. He's Edward Whalen, president of Ethics and Public Policy Center, and also co-editor of three volumes of Justice Scalia's books. Ed, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you, all of you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving on here at Legal Faceoff, our last guest before we get to the legal grab bag, it's Jennifer Sobel, the executive director of Illinois Prison Project. You can find out more about her and her work at IllinoisPrisonProject.org. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So as COVID-19 continues to surge again across the country, it's also been surging among our prison populations as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about the disproportionate impact that COVID is having among inmates? Absolutely. COVID has ravaged the state to be sure, but it is a dramatically worse situation within the prisons throughout Illinois. There are institutions where the posit where the rate of folks who have been infected is higher than 50%. Um, and part of this is because unlike in the wider world where people can self-segregate, they can self-isolate, they can stay in their homes, in prison there's no such thing as social distancing. There are facilities where men and women are housed in in dorm style settings, up to 20 people at a time, even in institutions where there are single or double cells. Um, the prison population is such that people cannot really be alone. There are too many people in our prison, so every cell is full. People cannot distance, and so the virus has spread through a population that is on average older and much, much sicker than the state at large. And so it's had really devastating effects throughout the prison system. Jennifer, why should people who are not in prison care about people who are in prison? Um, how, if anything, does what happens inside the walls of a prison affect those of us who are outside the walls of that prison? It's a great question, and it's one I've been asked a lot recently. I think there are two answers to that question. The first is that prison 
prisons are porous, right? There is nothing that happens inside a prison that doesn't affect people outside of the prison. And that's because 8,000 correctional officers come and go from Illinois prisons every single day. And so if there is an infection, if there is an outbreak, if there is a um, disease that's spreading within the prisons, prisoners, incarcerated people are going to come into contact with correctional officers. They just are. That's the nature of being incarcerated. And those folks are going to bring it back to wider communities. Um, that is especially dangerous with a disease like COVID because so many of Illinois' prisons are located um, in parts of the state without Chicago-level medical infrastructure, right? So you think about a, a facility like Lawrence Correctional Center or Menard Correctional Center, um, which are located in smaller towns with less robust medical care systems. Um, the presence of COVID, it poses a real existential crisis to those healthcare systems. And as it rages within the prisons, it will continue to rage within the communities. The other reason why this matters is because people in prison are people. They are people with families, with mothers and fathers and children and brothers. And so even if you don't personally know someone who is incarcerated right now in the state, I bet you know someone who does. And in the same way that um, you're or that we're all worried about our family members and our loved ones, People throughout the state, throughout the community, and whether you know it or not, throughout your own social networks, have loved ones who are in prison right now. So Jennifer, just in the past few days, there's been a lot of press about a number of states, including California, New York, and Massachusetts, prioritizing the vaccinations of inmates because of these steeply rising numbers. Um, there are also states that are coming out on the other side of it. The debate really seems to be, as we've touched upon, a moralistic approach versus saving as many lives as possible. How is Illinois coming out on this issue? Well, I think as recently as yesterday, the Illinois Department of Public Health released its vaccination schedule and incarcerated people are in 1B, that, that, that second but very, very high up uh, group of folks who are going to get the vaccine. And I think, you know, it's a wonderful development. I really want to applaud the governor and the entire administration for taking this threat seriously um, and for recognizing both the humanity of people who are incarcerated, but also the, the reality that until we keep um, the pandemic at bay within the carceral setting, we will not be able to get it under control within the communities. Jennifer, how do you overcome, you know, just back to the earlier point, how do you overcome the perception that prisoners are not as deserving of the vaccine or of, you know, equal treatment as others, um, especially, you know, given the scarcity right now of the vaccine, right? I mean, we all heard from the Trump administration and the CDC that there would be 20 million people vaccinated in December. It turns out there was two and now there's maybe four. The pace is accelerating, um, but not quickly enough for most people. So the question is, how do you convince the average person who is not vaccinated um, to prioritize a vaccine for someone who may have committed, you know, uh, a horrible act that, that put them in prison in the first place? That's and I'm sure we can answer that question. That's a big question. <laughs> Solve all of your problems. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's your major obstacle, I know. You know, I think that's a big question that makes me think about the fact that one in four black men is touched by the criminal justice system, um, that there are disproportionate, grossly disproportionate rates of arrest, prosecution, and over-sentencing based on the community that you live in and the color of your skin. And so I think that we are sort of 
um, as a society reckoning, and I think coming to realize that our criminal legal system is not a reflection of the inherent worth or goodness of any individual person, but is instead a reflection of a um, centuries-long system of oppression and racism. So that's sort of the, the big meta level. Um, for folks who are thinking about a more practical response, again, we will not control COVID in the communities until we control it in the prisons. We could have a 0% transmission rate among um, the people who live in any town in the state, but the second some a correctional officer goes to work and is exposed to the virus, that virus is coming right back. Um, and so just in terms of, you know, strictly practicalities, being, you know, very uh, utilitarian, controlling the spread within prisons is crucial to controlling, controlling the spread in the communities. All right. Very well put. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Welcome to our final and possibly funnest segment here on Legal Faceoff, the Legal Grab Bag. I'm Joe Brand. We're joined by Colleen Baraka, law professor at Northern Illinois University. Hi, Colleen. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Doing great, doing great. And uh, one of my colleagues at WGN Radio, Matt Bubala, the pride and joy of Mount Carmel High School. <laughs> hey, Joe. How are you? Doing well, Matt. Well, Rich, I'll send it to you. Apparently, uh, a pro-Trump lawyer had some choice words about Mike Pence on Twitter, huh? I mean, not the first time we're covering, uh, my friends, one of Trump's lawyers doing some wacky stuff. But this might be, if it's impossible to believe, this might be the, the latest and most crazy statement. So Lynn Wood is one of Trump's election lawyers. And, you know, he is famous for lots of wacky, lots of crazy uh, conspiracy theories. But the latest one, just the other day, actually attacks Trump's own team. He says that Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, should be arrested and executed, literally executed for committing treason uh, because he's about to certify the Electoral College. And also, uh, he said that Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, who, again, is was appointed by a Republican, uh, is a... Let me, get, let me make sure I get this right because I want to misquote the great Lynn Wood. He said that uh, he's a murderous pedophile, Supreme Court Justice, the, the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He said in a tweet to John Roberts, you are recorded discussing Justice Scalia's successor before date of his sudden death. How did you know Scalia was going to die? So he's saying that somehow Roberts was involved in the execution of Scalia. And then secondly, in this text, he said, or in this tweet, he said, are you a member of any club or cabal requiring minor children as initiation fee. So, you know, the bigger issue here is, is this continues to be a shit show. Uh, by this, I mean Trump's legal team. And we've talked about this extensively on our program. How could the president, soon to be the ex-president, not come up with a stronger team of attorneys? He's convinced, what, 12 or, or 15 U.S. senators to hold up the election. Tina, how could he not come up with lawyers who are not accusing the vice president of treason? You know, that's a great question, Rich. I mean, I'd say that when you look at least, and we've talked about this before on the show, when you look at least at some of the profiles of people who have represented the president um, over the past four years, I mean, some of them are really fine lawyers. The question is what happens to them when they start representing the president? And I think, a big part of the problem is, is that emotions run free 
We live in a social media world where the ease with which people can just say what is on their mind and have it go viral, it hasn't been any easier than it is now. And there's just a lack of of self-control. So people who are otherwise reasonably intelligent folks, I think, unfortunately, start doing some pretty stupid things. Yeah, Professor, is it the fact that there's a market for statements like this that Listen, 72 million people voted for Trump and people, you know, lap up some of these theories online. Is it the fact is the fact that there's a market for these kind of statements? Is that the reason why lawyers for Trump continue to spout off like this? I think so. I mean, what what alarms me when I read this article is, I mean, I I think it's just probably not good practice overall to threaten harm to the vice president, because last time I checked, that's a federal felony. And. Um, the fact that not only you know, are they making fairly unstable statements about John Roberts and other people, but to start just flippantly dropping that, I think, is just really alarming. Yeah. Matt, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that you ask what the market is for this. Well, it's a market of one, Rich. There's one person that they are all talking to when they spout off stuff like this, and that's the president himself. I believe that all of the House members and senators who are aligned with this idea of holding up the election don't truly believe that they're going to overturn the election or necessarily that there truly was a problem with the voting process, at least not on the scale. You know, of course, there's minor things, I'm sure, in every election, right? But to the scale that would overturn an election, they're all marketing to the one person who they feel that is going to do them some good down the road. And frankly, when you ask somebody, are you part of a cabal? That's <laughs> offensive because we were very upfront about our cabals right away. You, you register with the cabal, you let everybody know, nobody hides that type of thing. Exactly, exactly. Cabal is not a nearly used enough term, for, in my opinion. We really need to bring it back. 2021. <laughs> oh. Well, speaking of outlandish reactions, Maya Ponsetto, who's now being dubbed as Soho Karen, recently falsely accused a black teen of stealing her iPhone. So, you know, the authorities, this happened in Brooklyn, I believe, and the authorities there are still looking into whether to charge her with assault. Um, The family of the victim, the 14-year-old who didn't steal her iPhone, in fact, she left it in in an Uber, uh, they have urged authorities to charge this young lady with assault. But what has been uncovered in the last couple of days by a trusted source that we rely on on legal face of TMZ. Thank God for TMZ, Joe, because they do the hard work that we don't have the resources to do on this show. But guess what? Uh, Soho Karen, this is not her first run-in with someone uh, and not her first run-in at a hotel. She was kicked out of the Peninsula Hotel um, a few years ago uh, for public drunkenness. This was in Beverly Hills. Employees asked her in vain to leave after she appeared inebriated, her and her mom, um, and allegedly her and her mother, Nicole, allegedly pushed and kicked an officer. The mother was arrested for battery on an officer and being drunk in public. Uh, Maya was also arrested for being drunk in public. They pled not guilty. There's a hearing next month. But wait, there's more. Uh, She also has a DUI arrest in her history. She was arrested... uh, for, and actually taken to jail for a DUI. She pled no contest and received three years probation, community service, and was required to take a nine-month alcohol counseling uh, program. So, you know, all, we've all seen this video by now of this, this lunatic going crazy on this, on this, you know, innocent boy who didn't steal her iPhone. 
it's just great how things work, how the universe works. Do you know that, you know, inevitably, like in some of the other instances of Karens we've seen, these people have long histories of doing this kind of nonsense before. So uh, it's, it's, it's really funny in this case. Well, and I've, um, I, I, I pride myself on being an aspiring TMZ correspondent. And so I've actually looked at this aspiring case Karen. I thought you were going to say an aspiring Karen. <laughs> I know I'm not aspiring to be so Karen. Um, but no, I mean, what's interesting is that um, the people who were in this elevator, it was the day after Christmas that this all happened, is um, a Grammy award-winning Keon Howard and his son. Um, and she accused his son of stealing this phone. And he's already, I don't know if he's quite filed suit yet, but I know he's looking into filing suit against her. There have been headlines that the son, who was you know, really the one who was being zeroed in on, on this in this attack as being the person who had essentially you know, so stolen her phone, which was found minutes later, by the way, in an Uber, um, I mean, she went crazy on this kid and he's and he's going to sue. And apparently this kid's in therapy already because he can't understand why out of nowhere this lunatic went after him. Um, it's just it, it's really unfortunate. I mean, I saw some footage of her being interviewed yesterday or the day before. She's back in California now where she was approached by somebody, you know, asking her, like, how does she feel being a fugitive of justice, essentially? And her response was, well, you know, I'm 22 years old and I'm Puerto Rican. Have a nice day. That's literally what she said in response. Uh, I mean, just she's very I mean, I just feel terrible. I mean, I think there's something definitely wrong there. Yeah, there might be a little known exception to New York state law for Puerto Rican 22 year olds that she's. <laughs> referring to but matt i mean throw the book at her i mean even even if you didn't know her her history of drunkenness uh throw the book at this idiot she she tackled the guy well i imagine the puerto rican thing is she's trying to throw out hey it's not a race involved thing this was whatever and she's trying to defend from that but clearly with these other stories she clearly has a drinking problem so it's 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 a sad story but it it also does play to the entitlement culture. I think we sometimes talk about that too much or too easily say, oh, entitled. And maybe there's a lot more going on, but you know, three, four times that she's had these type of incidents, she needs to get a grip on reality. Yeah. Professor. Yeah. And I mean, they're not minor incidents. Like they're like slamming cops to the ground. And I mean, you know, it'd be one thing, be a little different if they were a little less intense, but she clearly has quite a few problems. It would definitely make sense if she showed a little remorse, but she didn't cry or anything. Uh, you know who used to make doves cry, though, is Prince. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's, it's Brad's first wow. show already wow. giving me whiplash with a segue. That's amazing. I saw the eyebrows raised, too, like as this was going on. I'm like, I hope, I hope I'm not pushing too many buttons. But uh, apparently the IRS claims that Prince's estate shorted their taxes by a big chunk of change, 32, nearly $32.5 million, Tina. Yeah, so this has made headlines recently. Um, you know, we talk a lot about celebrity estates here on Legal Faceoff, and unfortunately, when the estates of famous people is, are in the news, it's very rarely for good things. Um, so the latest news on Prince's estate, which has actually been the subject of a lot of controversy, no pun intended, great album, by the way, of Prince, um, was that that the estate essentially has been grossly undervalued. Um, people who are in charge of his estate say it's worth 80 million. Some people who are knowledgeable about the situation say it's worth 160 million. The IRS is saying that 
they've had a shortage of at least $32 million in taxes as a result of this undervaluation. There's some people who purport to be knowledgeable about the situation who say that it could be as high as $300 million, the valuation of his estate. So the tax court is involved now. It looks like um, they're looking for not just the back taxes, but also a $6.5 million penalty. So it'll be interesting to see where this all goes. Um, this is not the first one of these types of situations we've seen, and I'm sure it's not the last. But as Colleen and I were talking about earlier in the show with everybody else, it just makes you realize how raw we all still are from Prince's passing, which was almost five years ago at this point, which is really hard to believe. I was, I was surprised that they would allege only 80 million. I mean, you know, none of us are experts in this kind of thing, but just a layperson would think that Prince's catalog, his, you know, decades and decades of performing and producing albums, one of the most prolific artists out there, um, and also producing many other artists, you would imagine that it would be worth well over 80 million, unless, of course, he, you know, he blew a lot of it. So I'm not surprised that the IRS swooped in who are experts in evaluating this kind of thing and realize that 80 million doesn't sound right. Colleen? Yeah, I, I agree. It sounds pretty low. I think when I read this article, though, I was just sad because it's like, I think, as I remember, shortly after he died, because he didn't have a will, there were all, all sorts of um, arguments about who whose heirs would be. And then I think they settled on like his six siblings, maybe. And they haven't seen a penny yet because all of this is just being litigated and I think as of like a couple of years ago, there was already like seven million dollars in legal fees, and now like we we're saying, the IRS wants another six and a half. And it's like it just makes me sad when something like this takes so long to get resolved, and the main people getting paid are are the lawyers and, and tax experts. All right, Matt, start us off with our traditional roundtable of name your favorite Prince song. You're up. Well, I thought we were all going to have to throw a title in, so I was going to say I don't know if they're counting the Little Red Corvette when they come up with this total. But, uh, there you go. Oh, you know, here's the issue I have with it. As I saw the story, this is the one that intrigued me the most. You know, Bob Dylan just sold his whole catalog for $300 million. Now, I don't know what's included in Prince's estate. I don't know. You know, he had that big lawsuit when he ended up not using his name for a while. So I don't know what he truly owns. But if Prince owned his stuff, he's got to be worth way more than Bob Dylan, right? Stevie Nicks just sold a majority stake of her catalog for only $80 million. So Prince's, I mean, the IRS has got to go back again and recalculate this. He's got to be worth, if he owns his stuff, $300 to $400 million at least, right? Now, Prince was famous for having like just dozens of people hanging around him and, and living at, at Paisley Park. And imagine how, many, how much stuff those people grab, just you know, coming in and out of Paisley Park. But just think about the rights just to the songs. If he oh. owned his music, that alone, it's got to be astronomical. All right, Tina, favorite Prince song, go. You're a huge Prince fan. I uh, love Little Red Corvette. I also love Manic Monday. A lot of people don't know that he wrote that song for the Bengals. And, you know, that's just very representative of the 80s child that I am. So, Tina, he didn't write that for the Bengals. Well, he, he wrote it for Susanna Hoff. That's what he wrote it for. Come on. <laughs> Who was in the Bengals? <laughs> Prince, Prince knew what he was doing. Don't try to stump Bubala with Bengals trivia. <laughs> Listen, I had a thing for Susanna Haas. I think we need to take this off of Zoom, Matt. (laughs) Susanna Haas was, her her best move was just doing this. Oh, totally. Look over with her eyes. You mean like walking, walking like an Egyptian video. She kept doing that all the time. That's all you needed. That was her best move here. All right, uh, Joe, favorite Prince song. You're a young man, but you got Prince in you. Come on. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm going to age myself, but I, I really never listened to him that much growing up. I, I'm going to go with the, the main hit of Purple Rain. I, I just, I never really bought into Prince. I'll, I'll say it. First and last show ever. Colleen, go. You got it. Raspberry Beret. He did not play that when I saw him in concert. I was going to file a class action lawsuit. <laughs> no, ever, no jury would have touched. It would have been slammed up. Matt, favorite Prince song? I would go, uh, so I saw him in concert once. It was the Musicology Tour. Musicology from that album is incredible. I love two. I got two. I, got, uh, I Would Die For You is one of my favorites. And uh, I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man is a little known song, but it's just amazing. Sure. So, great Prince stuff. All right, let's keep rolling. Because we could talk Prince forever. Moving on to YouTuber Logan Paul, who's now getting sued for a movie from a couple years ago, went into uh, Japan's notorious suicide forest, and uh, he's getting sued for more than three and a half million, Tia. Yeah, so Logan Paul was supposed to be making a movie with Plainless Pictures, which is actually the production company that has sued him for three and a half million dollars. It was a collaboration with Google. Um, Logan Paul, as many of you know, millions and millions of YouTube subscribers. I mean, that's really how he's made a name for himself. If I could come back as anybody in the next life, I think it would be as Logan Paul because, man, I've worked way too hard in my life and not worth nearly as much money as I'm sure he is. Um, but in any event, he became famous for this suicide video, um, which is the Suicide Force video from Japan where he essentially filmed somebody who was hanging dead um, who had committed suicide by hanging themselves from a tree. Um, and in any event, what happened was Google ended up pulling out of this collaboration as a result. Plainless Pictures is claiming that Logan Paul should have known that when he posted this video, which I think had something like six and a half million views before it was ultimately pulled off of YouTube, that they should have known that um, this was a likely result and that this was going to end up sort of tarnishing the image of not just Logan Paul, but also the whole project. This airplane mode um, picture that they were supposed to make was supposed to be a parody about a bunch of social media influencers like Logan Paul. So in any event, a very interesting um, you know, story uh, Logan Paul is now turning to boxing, I believe. So he keeps reinventing himself for a guy who's like 25 years old. It's uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. So a couple of takeaways from this story. I mean, it's kind of a dumb lawsuit because this is a small, I mean, a relatively small budget film. Like $3.5 million is a fairly sizable amount these days for movies. But, you know, you would think that this would bring notoriety to the film. It would be, you know, a positive by the producers, but they, are suing him because uh, they think that it you know, brings some derogatory uh, attention to the film. I mean, it's a film starring Logan Paul, for Christ's sake. How, how highbrow could it be, right? I mean, the whole film is starring a, you know, a, a social media star and other social media stars. So you would think that the sensation brought upon by his video on the Suicide Force would be part of the whole marketing campaign. So I think it's kind of a dumb lawsuit. Um, and you mentioned the boxing. I mean, you know... He he kicked the crap out of Nate Robinson. A lot of us saw that fight. And now he's fighting Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather was the biggest boxer boxer on the planet for about you know 15 years. So you say he started a second career. He absolutely has. And uh, you know, no wonder this this you know this lawsuit is probably not a big deal to him given given the fights he's got coming up. But Matt, do you think that this 
lawsuit is meritorious or does well, it just bring more attention to the film? From, from what I read, this is very interesting to me because it wasn't the, the suicide video he released was not part of this film, from what I understand, nor was it shot as part of the film. It's just Logan Paul, YouTube guy, released this video. And Google pulled their money out of the movie because of the notoriety with Logan. He had a lot of heat and negative publicity surrounding him. So it would be like if, you know, if, if Brad Pitt committed a crime, got arrested, whatever, and some producers were like, well, that negates this clause, we're firing you. It wouldn't be his responsibility if the whole film went out. You find somebody else to star in it. And so this company blaming him and suing him because you because Google pulled out based on it just seems like you still have to be able to live your life. It wasn't as part of the movie. It wasn't as part of anything. I think this is definitely a frivolous lawsuit. All right, moving on to Danny Masterson, former That 70s Show star. He's finding his way back in the headlines for all the wrong reasons, though. Uh, Rich, I don't know, separation of church and state. First time I've ever used that phrase, but that's the first thing that comes to mind with this. Yeah, so there's four women who have alleged that Danny Masterson um, stalked them and uh, uh, were uh, victims of sexual harassment by him. They're being... Their claims are being investigated criminally against Masterson, but they've also initiated a civil suit. And just this week in L.A., the civil suit was dismissed because the judge said that they have to pursue him through an arbitration agreement through the Church of Scientology. Not something that we've seen too often, but apparently uh, there's an agreement in the Church of Scientology, which uh, counts Mr. Masterson as one of its practitioners that are practitioners, practitioners. Um, that you have to pursue such claims through arbitration. So the bigger story here, everyone, is that, you know, this is in line with what we've seen over the last few years in the Me Too movement with uh, alleged victims of sexual crimes, sexual assaults being silenced by arbitration clauses uh, like this. Uh, They're generally now frowned upon because the idea is you want to give victims their day in court. In this case, however, the judge in L.A. said that because of this arbitration agreement you signed, you're not going to get your day in court, at least civilly. Uh, you've got to go through arbitration. I wonder what arbitration in the Church of Scientology looks like, though, Tina. I'm not really sure. You know, I, I've seen a lot of documentaries on the Church of Scientology. Certainly handle things a little differently. Uh, not known to be the most um, female-friendly group. So I wonder what arbitration looks like in this kind of case. Well, I agree with you, Rich. Um, I, When I saw this story, I did not really have full faith and confidence that aside from the criminal proceeding, that this was necessarily going to be a fair process. And I'm also wondering what's going on with these folks that used to be on that 70s show between Danny Masterson and Tanya Roberts, who just died, to really you know terrible things. I mean, this is like the glee hoax or Glee Omen, um, where everybody on that show seems to either have passed away tragically or have had run-ins with the law. But um, but no, this is just a very sad story. I mean, I just find it really sad that, you know, that we're dealing with this kind of stuff and this arbitration, I just don't have faith in. Yeah, let's all hope that Topher Grace is being safe. Colleen, what are your thoughts on arbitration clauses like this? And, you know, the Church of Scientology, as far as we know from the outside perspective, is very insular. And, you know, I don't think they're going to get their day in court, so to speak, the same way they would in, you know, an open court uh, in, in the civil system. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think what'll be interesting is I think one of the victims is not a member of the Church of Scientology and did not sign off on this arbitration. So I think there is one person who still could go forward. So it'll be fascinating to see if she pursues that. And if so, what would happen in the outcome in her case versus the three that are are going through this arbitration. But I, I can't imagine that this, the Church of Scientology arbitration process would be fair. Matt, you were... You were going to jump in. I was like, wait a minute. I thought Tanya Roberts has not passed away because there was like, but but now she has passed away officially today. She died and didn't die and died again. She died, she was- I think, yesterday, but not as early as they said she did. Yeah, well, I was watching. I, I was watching on Inside Edition when they announced to her boyfriend that she didn't die, and he he was all you know he was understandably happy. Imagine going through that. She died, didn't die, and died again. Because all I was thinking was there's a publicist who's really looking for work today, whoever <laughs> prematurely announced that and then she wasn't. So very sad news. But I, I just don't understand uh, our legal system that allows a, a church to mediate. Like if Rich, if you and I signed a mediation agreement, would that just be binding wherever we ended up? Well, you know, again, I mean, you know, contracts are generally contracts are meant to be followed. And if you sign a contract like an arbitration agreement and you're a sound mind and, you know, you understood the terms of the contract, then those are common, right? I mean, they're a common way to uh, remedy disputes among individuals. But like I said, they are getting more frowned upon because in the wake of the you know, Harvey Weinstein affair, all these different sure. affairs, people signed confidentiality agreements and arbitration clauses. It's not seen to be consistent with justice, especially when you're talking about you know, victims of powerful men who often sign because they've got no other choice, don't read it, don't understand what they're signing, sign it when they're at the beginnings of their career. You know, when Harvey Weinstein slips you a confidentiality agreement or an arbitration clause and you're a young actress or producer trying to come up, you're going to sign it. Um, and then he's, you know, has his way with you. So that's why these these clauses are, uh, these agreements are, are now out of favor. Well, it makes sense that the church, who, that church does not want the publicity, so they make everybody sign it. So it would be, you know, I, I do understand that one person involved in this did not sign that. So this still has its chance to go at least for one person through civil court. Moving on, Nicki Minaj is being sued for $200 million for her song Rich Sex by a Queens rapper by the name of Brinks. Brinks? Brinks Billions? Is that it? B-R-I-N? Brinks Billions. Joe, I apologize. I'm not familiar with this song. Could you sing a few bars of it? Get ready. I'm going to ask you your favorite Brink song in a second. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning goes like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. That's all I got, though. That one. All right. Yeah, I remember now. So this one's a really interesting story. Maybe it's interesting to me as the intellectual property lawyer here who loves to you know, hear about people stealing each other's stuff, including songs. But in this case, Nicki Minaj is getting sued for $200 million, as Joe mentioned, by Brinks Billions. Um, he claims that years ago, um, he had talked to Nicki about this song, that he was the one who wrote the song, um, and that he played it for her, talked to her about it, and that she said, oh, this, oh, this is fantastic, it'll be a great hit. It ends up on her album, Queen, um, What's interesting here, which is a little bit different than the, than most of these um, stories that we talk about on the show, is that Brinks actually does get credit as a writer here. It's not like Nicki Minaj completely cut him out here. 
But the issue is that he wants to get credit as the sole writer of the song rather than just a writer of the song. He said that not only did she allegedly rip off some lyrics, but that she also took parts of the melody, the arrangement, um, and the rhythm. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of the Nikki versus Brinks um, war, but um, an interesting story. We, we see these all the time. I mean, people, especially when you've got a hit or an album that does well, people are going to be under scrutiny, especially when these albums do very well and make a lot of money. Well, you know, I've said it, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. It ain't such a thing as broken handsome, you know? I mean, that's, that's just that's something we all share, me and, and Brinks. But that's the alleged, that's one of the alleged pieces of evidence of stolen material. Colleen, do you put a lot of stock in these lawsuits? We see them all the time when artists allege that their lyrics have been stolen. They're generally, the, the common theme seems to be that they're lesser known artists alleging that well-known artists are stealing their lyrics. It's rare to see the opposite happening. Right. The main thing I was thinking about as we were talking about this is he's suing for $200 million, yet the Prince Estate is valued at $80 million. Like that's, that's like a little bit, little bit of a disparity to me. Don't tell the IRS. <laughs> Matt, quickly on this one. Well, I just... Um... I don't understand, Tina, this is a question for you. If, if you are credited as a writer on it, does that mean he signed something? Has he been receiving royalties? And then is there a time limit that he would have to say, no, wait, I did more than just that. I deserve more credit than that. Is there some basis for where you can make that argument? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if things go the way they're supposed to under the law, which they often don't, which is why us lawyers have jobs, um, as a writer, um, you do get credit and you do presumably get a royalty stream as a result of that. Um, and, you know, he wants a bigger piece of the pie, I would imagine. And he also feels like people who aren't writers of the song who are entitled, um, you know, theoretically to a certain part of that royalty stream, his argument is that they're not entitled to whatever they're purportedly getting as writers. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. And to Colleen's point, I can't believe that, you know, Prince's estate is worth 80 million and this guy wants 200 million. I, I just, you're, you're right. It boggles my mind too. I don't know Brinks billions. I did listen to both songs though. They're extremely alike. Um, even the intro with, with the O's and the us, uh, speaking of O's and us, uh, porn star, oh. Aria Lee. Oh my God. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh. Porn star, Aria Lee is representing herself in court for a $10 million lawsuit. $10 million, Rich. Let's just, let's just let that linger for a second. Speaking of O's and us, into a porn star story. That's just, that's Joe Brand right there. That's why, that's why Rich, you go get a Joe Brand. Rich, she doesn't have to be a lawyer. Clearly she can fake it. Ah, there you go. There's <laughs> so many softballs on this story. Wow, so, that was good. Aria Lee, by the way, Aria Lee is not, you know, some untalented, you know, adult star. She won the coveted <laughs> AVN Best New Starlet. And I'm just going to say it the way it's written. I don't, I don't make this stuff up. Best ass. She was a nominee. <laughs> For best, or no, she was a nominee in both categories in 2020. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, um, you know. That's you know, that's abbreviated. That's supposed to be assistant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to take credit away from the actual best ass winner. So we'll we'll say that she was best ass nominee <laughs> and nominee at the AVN Best New Starlet. By the way, the, the, you guys know the AVN Awards, the Adult Video News Award. Um, Never heard of them. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say that I've been to the Avian Awards, but um, we'll just leave that to a different, a different podcast entirely. But anyway, Aria Lee uh, alleged that an adult film director named Craven Moorhead just pause on that one. Great name. Wow. <laughs> it takes on a whole new meaning when you say it rather than read it. <laughs> Similar to Bubba's name back in the day, Craven Moorhead. She alleged that Moorhead uh, sexually assaulted her between scenes on an X-rated set and also later in his car. Well, he turned around and sued her for defamation, um, uh, alleging that it was not true. And that this allegation harmed his reputation, his career, etc. Um, well, uh, she has responded, and the interesting part is she is now pro se. She is not represented by an attorney. Uh, you don't often see individuals acting without attorneys in these kind of lawsuits, let alone porn stars. But you know, I read some of the of the answer. It's actually pretty well written. Um, you know, the the cliche is that what was the old cliche? A Porn star that acts as her own lawyer has a fool for a client. Maybe I'm misquoting that. It sounds like a fortune cookie. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) she seems to be doing a pretty good job on her own, Tina. She does. And if for some, I was actually surprised. I mean, I think she did, you know, better in her answers than some lawyers that we probably know. Um, But if nothing else, I'm sure that if it doesn't work out and she starts getting further along in the litigation and she needs help, I'm sure Kim Kardashian would be more than happy to help her out. I thought you were going to say, I, w- I might volunteer my services to, you know, the best ass nominee, best, you know, uh, new talent. But Matt, uh, do you think it's wise for Miss Lee to act as her own lawyer? She certainly has many talents um, in the acting genre, but maybe, you know, she missed her calling. Maybe, maybe the law is her, is her chosen profession. Well, I would assume, Rich, that you would hold out for a winner, not for a second place. However, I would say, as much as we're making light of this, it's a serious allegation. And take the salaciousness outside of it, take the names outside of it. It's a real case of a he said, she said type situation that needs to be litigated and the truth needs to be found. We have too many types of these things where men have gone unchecked for years and stories we hear from time to time of people making false accusations. So that needs to be litigated seriously. And I think she most likely should probably get serious representation. Yeah. And to that point, and again, no one's making light of the allegations, but to that point, you know, Colleen, um, there are plenty of people and it's your constitutional right to represent yourself. Plenty of people do it, but you know, as a lawyer yourself and as a law professor, I assume you would think that generally, especially when faced with, some pretty high-powered attorneys on the other side in this case. Um, that's probably wise to hire an attorney f- for this kind of situation. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there are certain skill sets that pro se litigants, especially for a lawsuit of this magnitude, would have a very difficult time with. So I think she'd be smart to... And I'm sure she could find somebody who would happily... You know, who's maybe even more licensed than Kim Kardashian is from her apprenticeships um, to help her out with it. Yeah, and, and Joe, the uh, one of the attorneys, I'm not sure, like, I read this three or four times to make sure that it wasn't a joke, but one of the attorneys who is re- representing the director, Craven Moorhead, said, when asked for a comment, if a porn star could be a lawyer, why not a lawyer being a porn star? So, you know, who knows? Maybe it could work both ways. Uh, is 
looking to pick up a second profession by that person i i have no clue the the whole thing like like you guys were saying just brings a lot of eyebrow raises but like matt said it's it's got to be taken seriously for for the time being and uh I mean, man, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable representing myself when $10 million is on the line. That's that's the one thing I could relate when reading this. So my, my reference to the AVNs is I, 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 I go to Vegas a lot. I, I work on a couple of shows out there, or I did before the pandemic. And uh, during one of our productions, the AVNs were going on at the same time at the Hard Rock. So we you know, went over there to check it out. Uh, very interesting award show, the AVNs. I mean, just... One of the categories of film, I mean, you could Google it, but I mean, you know, if you read just one of the categories of awards, uh, very interesting titles. But, uh, you know, a good time at the Avian Awards were, were had by a lot of the attendees. Very specific yeah. award show, it sounds like. Yeah, it is. It is very specific. Uh, and we'll end the show today with a very special shout out to our crack producer, Emily, who is heard but not seen right now. But uh, It's Emily's birthday today, everyone. So we'll wish... Emily, who works very, very hard on the show and, and, and books excellent guests like, like all of you, uh, a very hearty and happy birthday today, Emily. Thank happy you. Birthday, em. Happy birthday, Em. Happy birthday. Happy <laughs> birthday. Thank you so much. Well, that is the voice of Emily Flores, who helps put this whole thing together, along with Rich Lenkoff, Tina Martini, our guests today, Matt Bubala and Colleen Baraka. I'm Joe Brand. Be sure check out any of the legal face-off podcasts wherever you get your podcasts from wgn radio we'll see you next time it's christina martini and rich linkoff you know what time it is welcome to legal face-off two lawyers trading jab for jab so hit them up with any questions you have wgn radio we blowing up your stereo got a question just pick up the phone and they'll let you know covering sports hollywood and don't forget the